Psalm 126. I'm going to read out of the Geneva Bible in case you're wondering what's up with that language. It's a beautiful translation to be sure and certainly from the Psalms. Psalm 126, part of the Psalms of Ascent, speaks of the return of the captivity of the saints when they were restored to that heavenly city, that city of God, Zion. When the Lord brought again the captivity of Zion, we were like them that dream. Then our mouth filled with laughter and our tongue with joy. Then said they among the heathen, the Lord hath done great things for them. The Lord hath done great things for us, whereof we rejoice O Lord, bring again our captivity as the rivers in the south. They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. Then they went weeping and carried precious seed, but they shall return with joy and bring their sheaves. As far as the reading of God's word, you may be seated. Let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of it. O Lord, we ask even now this morning, that you would fill our hearts with longing to hear your word, to know it, to be transformed by it. Lord, that you would lodge it deep within our very souls so that we might respond with lives shaped by your word. And so we sing as those with both sorrow and joy in our hearts, For we know that there is a time to plant, there is a time to pull up, there is a time to plant, and there is a time to reap the glorious harvest. Lord, these times are not accidental or circumstantial. They are ordained and decreed by you ultimately to glorify yourself through your people. And so we ask, O Lord, that we might be a people who do not fear captivity, who do not fear the arrows and the slings of the wicked, but that we would as those who are eternally secure in you. Be willing to fight for how sweet the reaping for those who sow in tears. We pray all this in your name. Amen. If you're familiar with the history of the Moravian Church, not really connected to the Reformation, but in some ways most Protestant denominations are connected to the Reformation. The founder of the Moravian Church still has one of the greatest names I've ever heard, Count von Zinzendorf. I mean, what a name. You would need a big dog if you were to call it Count von Zinzendorf. Sent two men, Johann Dober and David Nietzschemann, who longed to go to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and the liberty that is found within the slaves in St. Croix in the Danish West Indies. They were, however, not permitted by law as white men to sell themselves into slavery and go to preach to the slaves. And yet, nonetheless, they sought out such an end, for they wished to work among the slaves. One official said, that is impossible. It will not be allowed. And so Nishman replied very well, I'm a carpenter, and I will ply my trade. And so Nishman and Dober 
traveled to the islands of the New World, and there, after some difficulty, began to labor among the slaves around the fall of 1732. They went to St. Thomas later in December, and while they were in St. Thomas, they lived lives not unlike their peers. And there they established churches throughout the islands of St. Croix, Jamaica, Antigua, Barbados, and St. Kitts. And there the Moravian missionaries baptized 13,000 converts ever before any other missionaries arrived on those islands. These men were willing even to go to captivity to sow in sorrow in blood, sweat, and tears, for they knew what the reaping of the gospel would be. Both of these men, after their return from the West Indies, continued to serve the Moravian church, one in Europe, but Nishman traveled to North America and labored with John Wesley in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, all places. I think we have to look at these men and admire them, for they are men who understood Psalm 126 well. And as we seek, as a church, to minister faithfully, we must ask ourselves this question. Do we think that in this life we will be anything other than the church militant? And what is our view of what will come in the end of days when Christ will return, gather us to himself, the dead, going to meet him in the air first, and we will be members of the church triumphant? This morning I'm going to look at that fortune the fortune, the glory, the deliverance that God brings, how we are to think of it and labor for it in light of Christ and his cross. Two points that I want to make this morning. The first, how fortune should be understood, how fortune should be understood, and then secondly, in light of that, pleading for the restoration of fortune. And you might add laboring. Pleading and laboring for the restoration of fortune. Let's look at this first point, how fortune should be understood. Now, it is a prevalent idea in our culture, that idea, at least it was for many generations, and you've heard it today, and that is the health and wealth gospel. Now, the deficiency in the health and wealth gospel is not that the gospel does not promote health and wealth or promise it to us, But it does not promise it to us based upon the condition of our obedience alone, as though it flattens and it creates an equal sign between obedience and blessing. In fact, if you look at the most pious people you've ever met, they are most likely, surely, those who have endured much hardship and sorrow. Um, If you don't know those people in your own life, you don't know enough people. If you don't know those people in the Scripture, then you don't know enough Scripture. The Scripture points time and time again, because of the fall, the promises of God received by those who are under the weight of the fall and the promises given and then manifested in the face of great adversity, so that man may never say, look at what our hands, look at what our hands have done. We know that God operates this way. Now, here in Psalm 126, it opens when the Lord brought again the captivity of Zion, that is Israel in Babylon, and he brought us out of Babylon. We were like those who dream. 
This was an answer to their prayers. This was the dream they all hoped for, that God would restore them. And so Israel is singing of their liberty. It is not unlike Israel being delivered out of the hands of the Egyptians or the Babylonians, the kingdom of Satan, and the seed of the serpent. Israel is singing of the days of the Lord's great favor when he restored, the ESV says, the fortunes of Zion. Here, in the Geneva and in the New King James or the King James, it speaks of the being brought again of the captivity. This translation does not want us to miss the connection between captivity and fortune, and I think that's a benefit to us especially for Americans, right? We want our fortune now. And where do most seek fortune today? Where are people looking for the handout? Not from Zion or the king of the heavenly city, but from the kingdoms of men. They're looking for welfare. Not the welfare of the one who died and was raised, but the welfare of those who don't even care about them. It is the Lord who restores the fortunes of Zion. It is the Lord who brings us again out of captivity. And in response to this, like an answer to a dream, a dream made real, they worship. Verse 2, then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with joy. Then said they among the heathen, the one from whom they have been delivered, The Lord has done great things for us. Now, what does this mean about the worship of the saints in light of who is called to hear it? All men. All men should be exposed to, whether they like it or not, the songs of deliverance that God works for his people even against the heathen nations. Do you know who paid for the rebuilding of the walls of the temple and of the holy city, Jerusalem? It was the Persian Empire. What money did Israel carry with them out of Egypt? They were slaves. What did they have? They carried the gold and silver from the treasuries of Egypt. Part of the work of the church is to plunder the wealth of the nations because you know who it belongs to? It does not belong to them. It belongs to Christ. It belongs to the church. Fortune is given by God and it is bestowed upon those whom he will in his timing and for his purposes. It is given by God and it is all of grace. Fortune and deliverance are accomplished by God and he delights in them more than even we do. Parents, think of that gift. Maybe you've gotten for your children or husbands for your wives or wives for your husbands or some significant gift that you have purchased with great price for a friend. And children, you've heard the proverb, it is better to give than to receive. And maybe you don't believe that that's true until you've given something of great value to someone whom you love and the thing that you anticipate more than anything else in life is to see the the eyes of another light up in response to a wonderful gift received from you. 
I can't remember who it was. I know some of you, some of you may know. Speak of Christ moving to the cross of suffering with greater joy than we go to the throne of grace for help. Someone can tell me who that was at some point after church. But the point is true. God's desire to show mercy precedes our longing, our desire to receive it. Let us never forget this. God has designed, prior to the laying of the foundations of earth, a sovereign historical record that will magnify and show he loves to show grace. He loves to give freely out of the bounty of his mercy. And in response to this, having been made alive, we with joy say, thank you. When we give of our tithes and our offerings, we don't give first, hoping that God would then give something to us as though we can manipulate him. No, we give as a response second to what he has done for us. And so the scriptures say, can you outgive God? Or fathers, which of you, if your son asks for an egg, will give him a serpent? How much more our heavenly father, Christ is speaking of the gift of the Holy Spirit there. He is speaking of God indwelling us. And so nothing strengthens and emboldens our hearts like God's fortune being delivered. And so at the preface of the Ten Commandments, we always read, I am the Lord your God who led you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land or house of sin and bondage. So that out of a heart that responds to the mercy and grace of God, we say all that we are, our whole hearts, our whole lives, we give to you. Love therefore the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then love thy neighbor as yourself. Nothing nurtures a heart like grace. And you and I, we have been delivered. Parents, rehearse this with your children. Let your children know that they are sinners. They're precious. But boy, they can just... But it's not against you that they sin and sin alone. It's against God. And so in their sin, you are called to lead them to the throne of grace, not presumptuously. Baptism is not something we say, Lord, see, look, 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 look. We did this thing. Therefore, you must do this thing. We baptize our children as an expression of our humble reliance upon God's grace. Out of his abundant mercy. We build this church. And so fortune, being brought again out of captivity, is something that only God can give, and we look to him alone for it. For it is the promise, and our laughter is the realization of captivity reversed. And so the Christian life is full of two conflicting, seemingly paradoxical emotions, sorrow in the labor and laughter in the reaping. Now, you need only mentor, nurture, disciple a human soul to know of this conflict. Parents, 
the blood, sweat, tears, prayers that you have poured into your children going, Lord, is this seed going to take root? And then you see them flourish. Thank God. Praise the Lord. Because our children seek Christ oftentimes in spite of us, right? Because we are unfaithful, but God is a faithful father. Or in the labor to plant a church or any endeavor devoted to the Lord. One of the reasons we're getting together on August 13th to celebrate the paving of a parking lot. Come on, guys. It's just asphalt, but it's not, is it? Isn't it nice to go down that little hill and not feel like you're destroying the, the sort of suspension on your car? That every time you go to church, you're taking a year of the life of your vehicle off. No, it's this smooth transition. That smooth transition, that's Christendom, right? That is taking honor and glory for Christ. <laughs> and for years, we sowed in tears this horrible part. I mean, how many of you fell and twisted your ankle? And now, I know it's a very real example. But these are the examples we need, are they not? So oftentimes we Gnosticize. I know that's not a word. I'm using it. I'm making it a word. We over-spiritualize the promises of God. Or parents, when you bring your child home from the hospital, having had a complicated process of developing that child in the womb, what's going to happen? And it's like you've been freed from the shackles of concern and sorrow. There are these cyclical moments in the life of the church of sowing in sorrow, in tears, in labor, and sometimes those tears are tears of pain and angst and exhaustion, and then there comes the time when after all of that labor, or undergoing the judgment of God because of rebellion, he brings about moments of joy and redemption and laughter. One of the things that always seems odd to me when Christians get together at funerals is there is still laughter. And where does it always come from? It's not this psychotic laughter. You know what I mean? They know where they are. But the laughter is always in response to some story about Uncle So-and-so who's now in the ground. But remember that time he did that thing? To remember the sweet moments of mercy. And in the life of this church, if we were to recount our history and the people who have come and the people who have gone and we were to really flesh out in technicolor the history of this church, there would be moments where we would be brought to tears, and then there would be moments of laughter and rejoicing. Welcome to life. <laughs> Children, this is what you have awaiting you. The seeming paradox of crying and laughing, kissing one another, intimate companions, And so the only response in light of freedom from captivity is laughter. Verse 3, why? What is our confession? Because the Lord has done great things for us whereof we rejoice. 
You see, the world knows nothing of true sorrow or true laughter. They're both insincere. They know nothing of being grieved over their sins because they know nothing of the freedom that salvation in Christ Jesus brings. Brothers and sisters, you and I live among a people with deeply stunted emotions who try then to cure the empty hollowness of their hearts and their souls with the stuff of earth. And so their sorrows never sink to the depth of misery over their own sin in contrast to the glory that freedom and salvation bring. You and I are emotional creatures by the way we were made. But so many Christians seek to walk around and say, no, I'm just going to be happy. And they often come to church and the songs they sing don't represent the depth of of their sorrow. Because you want to be happy when you're a Christian, right? That's psychotic. As though the church is only for happy people all the time. And if you're not happy, well, you need to get happy. All the churches throughout this world now, today, who gather for worship and they hide from men of power who seek to kill them, to silence them, to torture and persecute them. One day, can you imagine this? When they worship for the first time without fear, it may be glory. They may have to die to do it. It does put some perspective on the glory. I mean, the benefit and the beauty that we have here. Smooth transition, isn't it? (laughs) From Saturday to Sunday. It's all of grace. It's given by God. And it brings joy and hope. This is the fortune of God. Let's look at the uh, second point then. Pleading for the restoration of fortune. So deliverance from Babylon is not the only time Israel was in need of deliverance. That the church of Jesus Christ, as she wars against the kingdom of darkness, will find herself in different places and at different times in different kinds of conflict. Sometimes it will be clear that she is winning that war culturally, sociologically, morally, and then there's times where she appears to be losing it. It is not wrong for you and for me to pray and to desire for good fortune to be realized and understood again. But it must be properly ordered. For many in the church think that conflict can be avoided through cowardice or niceness. As though somehow if we let the world sort of spin out there, then they will give us a place here where we can worship aright. And I'm telling you this because we see it in Scripture. We see it in history. We see it commanded in the principles of it, fashioned in the text of the Word. If you want peace, you pray for peace, and you dress yourself for battle. It is the battle of the Word. It is the conflict. It is the raging of the war of principalities and powers, but it is a war. We just sang it in Psalm 149. The church has a double-edged sword. We don't have any swords to give you here, but we do have a word. 
We have the living and active word that is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it is able to divide. It is able to proclaim mercy to those who kiss the Son. And it is able to condemn those who reject the Son. This is what it means when we worship before the heathen. We do not worship the heathen. We do not worship as the heathen worships. We do not worship in a way that the heathen approves of, right? With mouths covered in your own homes, behind your television, with the doors of the church locked. That's how the heathen wants you to worship. And do you know what that worship is? It is no worship. They wish to silence the church. It's interesting in the places where power is most godless, the call to silence was the greatest. That connection is laid out for us. Why? In the scriptures. And it will not be the first. It will not be the second. This has happened time and time and time again. And you need only ask a coward to close his mouth. You have to run a brave man through. Think of the early church. Those who were fed to the lions. Those who in the garden of Nero were covered with tar and then set aflame while living. So that his guests could have light in the evening. Or the whole nation of the Netherlands who were excommunicated by the Roman Catholic Church, at one point, all of them pronounced to be dead or to be put to death. The age of the Reformation saw one of the greatest periods of persecution in history, second only to the persecution of the church in the 20th century. What else would happen What else will happen when the kingdom of darkness sees the kingdom of light encroaching upon its territory? There will be warfare. There will be captivity. The question for us will be this. Are we willing to submit, in essence, voluntarily to the captivity of the church militant? That is, are we willing to sow in tears so that we might receive with laughter what we have sown? This is where we're headed next. Verse 4, O Lord, bring again our captivity, that is deliverance, as the rivers in the south. Why again? Because this is how God has prescribed for his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven, as a model, as a picture of Christ's death and then resurrection. There is suffering, and then there is joy. There is pain in the childbirth, and then that pain just seems to melt away when that child is placed in his mother's arms. What pain? Completely distracted by joy. No other emotion so full of joy. Oh, Lord, bring again our captivity As the rivers in the south, they that sow in tears shall reap in joy. They went weeping and carried precious seed, but they shall return with joy and bring their sheaves. The mission of God is not unlike the captivity of Israel. Time and time again, God said to Abraham, he said to the people before Abraham, go and be fruitful and multiply 
spread out over all the earth. And the heart of sin wants to do what? Stay and build a city to the glory of man. And God says, no, go west, go forth, go from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, to the utter ends of the earth, that we are not only called to care for and nurture this place, though this place is to be first in our hearts, we are called to take the word and move outward with it to the nations. And in doing so, what we are in essence is volunteering for captivity, for enslavement, for persecution, for suffering. We're enlisting. We're not being drafted. Although sometimes it feels that way, doesn't it? Kicking and screaming like the prophet Jeremiah, who just couldn't remain silent, but there was such a a burning of the word within him, he, he with great tears preached. But look, verse 5, whoever sows in tears shall reap in joy. The way that we express this is you get out of it what you put into it. Now, a lot of people don't want to hear that in the church because anything that reeks of obedience to God's law is now deemed legalism. Because heaven forbid we ever say to people about this heart religion, you need to do things Christ calls you to be faithful in every part of yourself. But here is the connection between sorrow for the sake of the kingdom and joy that comes from the king. The degree to which you sow is connected to how much you reap. Go plant something. In the state of North Carolina, I grew up in Georgia. You plant Bermuda. Because in Georgia, it's just a better hot weather grass or centipede, and it's a creeping grass, and it just propagates itself. Well, in North Carolina, you do something every fall around the time of Labor Day called overseeding. And if you do not overseed, your fescue lawn will quickly diminish and the weeds will come in. It requires a constant sowing, sowing, sowing so that you can reap a luscious green lawn that is better than your neighbor's. (laughs) Because that's the goal, right? It doesn't have to be green. It just has to be greener than your neighbor's. How can we ever, as a congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, ask God to build and to grow and to bless if there's no raw material or raw work being done? Bless what? How did this parking lot get built? The asphalt ferry? No. No. (laughs) Hardworking men (laughs) with skin like leather, day after day in the heat of the sun, paid by a man who we pay to come and do this for us. Where did that money come from? Children, does it grow on trees? No. Did it just rain down from heaven one Sunday? No. Godly men and women who labored tirelessly in their income gave out of the overflow of their heart to this church to pave a parking lot. It's not always easy to give. And this is a small example. It's not always easy. But the joy that comes in blessing the people of God 
in pushing back the kingdom of darkness, in seeing the conquest of the church, whether it's a parking lot or a new mission field, or the calling of a pastor, or the establishing of a Bible study, if Reformation endeavors to joyously reap, we must at times even sorrowfully, obediently sow. Verse 6, they went weeping and carried precious seed, but they shall return with joy and bring their sheaves. The mission is hard. Look at Paul's life, shipwrecked, bit by snakes, imprisoned by the government of his citizenship, ultimately being beheaded by that same government, confessed even in house arrest, though I am bound, the word of God is not bound, suffered much. We just studied Stephen on Wednesday, preached a mighty sermon and was killed for it. I wonder if I would do that if there were men waiting there. Talk about walking the aisle, right? That's not the kind of response you want. Except there was a man, Saul, who was there, who wrote most of the New Testament, led by the Spirit. In Christ's conversion of Saul, he said, Saul, you have caused much suffering for my sake. Now you will suffer much for me. And that wasn't a, ha-ha, got you, Saul. It was actually a display of the extraordinary depth of God's mercy. For we should count it what? A joy. Is this not what Peter's saying? What a joy it is to suffer for the name of Christ. Paul did not understand this as God getting the better of him. He understood it as, who am I to suffer for the name of Christ? Who caused him such suffering? If we go out weeping, we come in rejoicing. Do you wish to have joy in the Christian life? Then go find some way to suffer. (laughs) For him, find some way to magnify the name of Christ, to sing in front of the heathen. Go stand at the, the doors of City Hall. Go stand outside the local abortion mill and sing of the freedom that comes in Christ Jesus. Let your godliness be known before men. It may just be an individual you're scared to death of. So in nerves. So in anxiety. So in fear. So with weeping. It's a tough task, but the inheritance fills us with such joy there's no other emotion possible. This is what will come in the harvest. And God gives us glimpses of that even now, does he not? There will come a day when there will be no more sorrow and no more tears. We're not there yet. And until that day comes in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be a cycle of sowing and reaping, sowing and reaping, sorrow and joy, sorrow and joy. But only those who sow in sorrow will reap in joy. Only those who sow painful labor in the kingdom will reap that blessed joy in the fulfillment of their inheritance. 
If you stay out of the fight, you will never find the king's fortune. If you fail to sow in tears, you will never reap laughter. And in us, Christ is the great example, isn't he? Christ suffered the most, and he got the most. Christ is for us a great picture of all of this. May we then sow and reap. Let's pray. Oh, Lord our God.